0: Welcome to week four of class. Uh, This week, we're going to be talking about information technology, the power and influence that it has over our privacy. So first, a few notes from the discussion last week uh, that was due at noon today, today's Thursday, on digital relationships. Uh, There's some interesting discussions that were sparked there, and I think there's some generational divides that are starting to come through, which are to be expected. One thing that struck me is uh, something I've read about the Amish – there are various Amish communities throughout the United States. They're not one monolithic organization. They're each a series of, of self-governed communities. And the technology, I, I think the the uh, the general impression is that the Amish don't do electricity, they don't do phones, they don't do whatever. And um, that's not exactly a, an accurate picture. It turns out that with a, when a new technology becomes available, the individual community gets together To decide whether or not it would benefit the community so when phones became a thing uh, there was the discussion at many of the Amish communities uh, to see whether or not they should allow this new new technology and they felt and some of your comments today made me think of this they felt that having a phone would mean that you wouldn't visit people face to face as often they thought that was a detriment to their community and they did not allow it in most of the time now they usually do have a phone somewhere in, in the community in case of emergency. So they see the, the reason for that. So it's not that there's a, a prohibition of the very idea of the technology. It's that the technology should serve the needs of the community, not the other way around. In the same way that they don't tend to go with mechanized uh, tractors to do their agriculture because they worry about the, uh, the effect it would have on the number of people needed to work the land and the quality of life and all those things. So it's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, again, the the difference between, and I'm not sure older, younger necessarily cuts it. I think it's, it's, although that's certainly part of it, I think it's also a dimension of those that use technology a lot and those who don't. And it comes down to this idea of whether mediated communication or whether digital communication is superior or inferior to in-person communication. Um, and the, the pros for the mediated communication were interesting. And, and, and they're reasonable that you do have time to think about what you want to say. You have time to correct your grammar, get your thoughts together and all of that. So that can certainly be a benefit. But the cons are that you lose the nonverbal clues that are sometimes helpful as well. And there's just a different feeling about being physically talking to someone rather than like I'm doing now talking to a microphone. Okay, so those are all interesting things and, and um, I think the grading worked this time, so I think you should have grades for those now. As far as this week's material, we're starting in on our, our textbook for the class. There's only the one textbook. It's privacy and contra- Pri- privacy in context. there we go by Helen Nissenbaum. And I've posted links to that other places as well. So this week we're talking about, part one, I think the first three chapters, and it's on information technology's power and threat. One thing to keep in mind when reading this book, and hopefully you've already done that by now, is that the book is 10 years old. Uh, there, it may be a newer edition, a little bit, but it's still a lot of dated material. So things have definitely gotten worse. They've definitely changed. But I think what I like most about this book is the way that the author sets up the material in, in the part one, and then her framework that she's going to develop in parts two and three. Okay, so one of the things that that she talks about early on in in the book in this uh, section is on the direct and indirect monitoring and and tracking and the difference there. So if you develop a system whose specific aim is to keep an eye on somebody, then monitoring becomes the main point of that system. Okay, so if you put up a ring doorbell at your front front and the front of your house, your front door. You know, it's not inadvertent that you're tracking people. That's the whole point, okay? So there are many systems that do that, either directly, they're tracking you, or indirectly, something like the CCTV cameras that are more prevalent in in the the UK, but certainly not unknown here, uh, where you just get caught up in the, the mass surveillance of an area, okay? So they're not targeting you in particular, okay? So another issue that's becoming... In some ways, more of a problem is this idea of tracking, which is inadvertent. Okay, so the book also uses the word data valence. So instead of surveillance, it's data valence. So this is not necessarily that they're looking to get you, they're looking to find out anything about you. It just comes along with the process. And some of the systems were developed uh, to help people. I mean, think of the 911 system. You know, now when you make a call, uh, the phone company has to know within so many yards where that call was made. That was done so they can get ambulances and police and fire to your location. But that has the inadvertent effect of allowing our every movement to be uh, captured and potentially stored and manipulated by our phone company or our phone provider. So uh, this doesn't matter whether you have your location services turned on or off. If your location services are turned on, there's going to be a much clearer picture of where you're located with the GPS chip that most phones have. But even without the location services, the, the phone company has to be able to look at the cell towers that you are accessing um, and get a, a pretty good idea of where you're located at. So that just, that can't be, that can't be avoided. Okay, so another example of that are going to be the black boxes. We always hear about black boxes on airplanes, but there are also black boxes on cars that are going to, um, you know, keep track of all kinds of information about the systems in the car, how fast it's going, how the wheels turned, whether the brake is being pressed or not, uh, what gear it's in, all those things. Uh, Those I couldn't find out for sure whether – that's common it's apparently it's pretty common in cars nowadays with the book it was just starting to be a thing uh, where they had to let you know um i I couldn't in my quick search today i couldn't find out the current status i need to do that but certainly that will become a thing um, that could be admissible in court that you know you said you weren't speeding but yet you were speeding okay so the other example the book or an example the book gives that is useful is the one about, uh, she quotes somebody else, who talked about the differences between going to a mall, looking around the stores, and buying a scarf rather than doing it online, okay? And there there are many aspects where that's different. The social aspect is different. You don't really talk to anybody if you're online, uh, all that. But but in, in particular, the focus is on the information that you are putting out to the world, okay? So, Clearly, if you drive your car, then your uh, and you have your phone with you, then then your phone company knows where you're going. There's a fair chance the phone or the, that the car knows where you're going, especially if you have a GPS system. But um, that's more they're not monitoring you in particular. It's not tied to you necessarily. Somebody else could have your car. Somebody else could have your phone. Uh, you know, although probably not. Okay. But you look around the different stores. You walk into a store. You have made no data impression at that point unless now sometimes the stores will have cameras and they're tracking this but even today you know 10 years after the book was written we're, we're still not doing that that much okay at least at the smaller stores so no one knows that you were there unless you happen to see someone that you know or if you know the the sales clerk uh what you look at you know what you choose to browse uh if you're in a bookstore which magazines do you look at if you're in a clothing store which Items of clothing do you pick up and, and do you carry around with you a while before deciding to buy them or not? All of that information is, is unavailable to the merchant. When you go to pay, if you pay in cash, there's no record of you paying for anything. Now, if you use a credit card, of course, then the credit card company knows all that information. Okay, But it's a choice that you have whether to use cash or not. If you buy the same scarf online, not only do you have to Use a credit card. There's no way to pay cash, at least not a practical way to pay cash online. But in addition, every store that you go to has a record that you've been there. And every page that you look at, every item that you look at, there's a record of that. In addition, they will know how long you looked at this item. They'll know, did you put it in the shopping cart? Did you leave it there? Did you take it out? How many things did you consider before you bought it? So all this information is being generated about you all the time. So it really is a different story. The next topic is on the RFID chips or the radio frequency identification chips. And those come in two varieties. What's been used for a while now has been the passive variety. So your uh, Amazon package, uh, for example, will have an RFID chip embedded in the packaging. They're super cheap to buy. You can buy them by the hundreds. And then, as the box passes by a scanner, the scanner will pick up that it's there. So, if you look to track your package, it'll say last scanned at whatever. Okay, these are not typically uh, a person doing the scanning. There's a whole pallet or a whole truckload of, of things that come into a location, and all the RFID chips are automatically triggered at once. Okay, but there are now active. RFID chips that actually do broadcasting. Um, a while back, the U.S. government decided that passports should have RFID chips in it. That's led to quite a bit of controversy as hackers have been able to track and glean information from sometimes, you know, several hundred feet away from the person with the card, which can cause all kinds of trouble. There's also been a movement. We certainly have started with our pets, and sometimes with our kids, uh, sometimes with employees or even customers to embed RFID chips under the skin. There's a little uh, capsule about the size of a grain of rice. They can slip under your skin and it's going to be able to broadcast. Okay. So there certainly are some good ideas for that. You know, if I had a pet that was lost, I would really like to be able to know exactly where they are, something they couldn't lose. Um, I had this option when I had a kid. It's been, you know, almost 30 years ago now. I think they were doing that. Um, I didn't do it and I wouldn't do it now, but if you ever had a kid lost, you would probably be wishing that that were the case. I've told my family if I ever develop memory issues as I get older, chip me right away. I, I want somebody able to, someone to be able to find me. But when it, when you're talking about adults, when you're talking about requiring it of your employees, which no one does yet, but it's certainly a possibility, um, or offering perks to your customers if they have this chip. We're getting into a a very difficult area, I think, something we really have to worry about or at least be concerned about to think through the ramifications of this. Okay, So that's some of the ways in in which we're generating data all the time. Our phones are generating it. uh, Our movements could be generating it. Our car generates it. Cameras see us, all this stuff. All of our online activities are all generating information. One of the other changes that have led us to where we are today is the relatively recent in world history um, idea that, that very powerful database database programs are available for free and fast computers and really big storage drives are available. It's now common to get one, two, five terabyte drives. Uh, my first hard drive had five megabytes, I think. That was a long time ago. So the cost is no longer prohibitive to be able to store lots and lots of information. And with these database packages that are available, it's very easy to store and categorize and do reporting on this information. In addition, because of the internet, the cost of moving data back and forth, before you had to write it out to a magnetic tape and put it in some kind of vehicle and and move it somewhere else, now nearly instantaneously, we're able to transmit these large chunks of data to a central location where it can be stored, okay, which can be difficult. So this information mobility is certainly something that we have to worry about. okay. Because of <clears throat> the aforementioned issues that we have all this data, we can move it around, you have the problem of information aggregation okay, or data warehouses is the more common way we would talk about that. It's where information from various sources can be put together into one giant collection of data. Where uh, programs can go searching for patterns. Okay. The next section, the thing, or the next section talks about uh, omnibus information providers, and that's what the written assignment for this week is going to be about on the discussion board. And that's companies, and there are several examples they give. Axiom, uh, Acxiom, is one of the big ones that collect information and sell it back to people you know, they're, they're going to uh, market their services in lots of ways. And I want you this week to pick Axiom or, or one of the others, go to their website, find out about them, do a little research to see what you can find out. But they see themselves as a public service that they're going to provide people with information to make their lives better. And, and they certainly can do that, but there certainly is a negative side to that as well. Until 2018, you were able to, I think that's the date, you were able to go to Axiom and look up what they knew about you. So I just went to that page just now before doing this lecture, and that page is shut down. It looks like, although I couldn't verify in the brief time I had before I had to record, that Axiom may have bought the company that was providing that information, and now it's not available anymore. They claimed something was going to be available in January of 2020, although no link was provided a quick google search did not turn up anything and there was nothing on this page so that that was a little curious to me but they're going to slice and dice your information categorize you put you into some category that they will then sell to advertisers uh, to see what it is that that you know that, that may match your profile okay the experiment we're doing in with our mystery product talking in front of our phones and things will all feed data into the system, okay, which can be difficult. So it also talked a bit about Google Street View, uh, which can get into a little bit of a thorny issue. If you take, I'm a photographer, so I know that if I take a, a photo from a public street, if I'm in a place I have a right to be, then I can do whatever I want with that photo. I can take a picture of you uh, in, a, in a public park. I can publish that on my website. I can sell prints of it. I can take pictures of your kids and publish them. I would not do that because parents can get pretty weird about it. I don't need a release (coughs) unless I'm using that photography for an ad purpose, but for a fine art or for any other kind of use, you're covered. So Google's argued they have the right to drive down the street, taking pictures, put them online, okay? And the pictures themselves are not the problem. The problem is the aggregation of all the pictures to where you can virtually drive down a street. And I love Google Street View. I think it's a great thing. But there are lots of things that have come up. There was a picture of a guy coming out of a strip club. He didn't want people to know that every time they walked down that street virtually. Uh, there have been license plates that are on there. There have been you know crimes being committed, all, all kinds of, of information, uh, pictures of people's kids, Okay. Since the book was written, there have been some changes. Faces tend to be blurred out most of the time. I think they're blowing out license plates and things like that. So there is some progress. But again, Google Maps, if I'm going to go to a new city, I use it all the time. It's a great service. But there's also a privacy risk. Okay. And then it talks about public records. Public records have always been available. You can always get someone's criminal record. You can always get someone's, um, you know, whatever public stuff you have, tax bills, all that's available. But in the past, you had to go to the county where the information was happening, uh, or the, where the information was stored, and you had to, uh, you know, fill out a request, get the information. It's very time-consuming, and could be costly depending on where you were. So that was a built-in barrier for frivolous uses. But now there's no such barrier. If I decided I wanted to find out who in Johnson City lives in a house that costs between $100,000 and $200,000. It's trivial to find that out. I could then target those folks with ads. Okay, so it's a difficult problem. Public records are public for a reason. You know, someone needs to be able, if I'm looking to buy a house, I need to be able to find out what the, the tax value has been. I need to find out if I'm going to hire someone, what, what their criminal record is. But when you make it so easy to get to the information, it allows for misuse. And we haven't figured out yet, again, 10 years later from when the book was written, we haven't figured out how to provide the right level of protection there. Okay? It gets back to the problem of, well, you know, cameras everywhere. If we had cameras everywhere and everybody was chipped, we would have no missing people. We would have a whole lot less crime because we would know who was in the location where the crime occurred and that's it. You know, and that's true. Uh, But we don't want to deal with the negatives of that. So we're against it. And sometimes people will say, well, let's do that to the criminals. But I think I've said it in this class before. Someone is not a criminal until they commit a crime. So we can't in advance determine who's a criminal and who's, a not, who's not. So you either have to chip everybody, observe everybody, or, or use it much more judiciously. So that's where things get a little bit sticky. The last section of the, of, this, uh, of this section of the book talks about social networks, and there's certainly more to come. We've already talked more about a lot of that information. Um, it's, it's funny, when you look at the list, it includes MySpace and Friendster, which are, are no longer around. Um, also, 10 years ago, Facebook was just a one of, of many uh, social uh, networking companies, and it's now become the social networking company, I think, for the most part. So it's all interesting information. So this first section sets up the technology, how the information is collected, how it's gathered, how it's stored, how it's sliced and diced, okay? And we're going to move into the next two sections to talk about what's being done with it and, and what's, what's some kind of a framework that we can develop for thinking about the legal impl- Im- implications of how to protect our privacy, okay? Okay. So that's it for this week. I think I'm putting a a little musical number at the beginning of the podcast this time to see how it goes. It may not work, so don't hold me on that. But uh, anyway, if you have any questions, as always, make sure that you send me an email or give me a call.